Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. Um, it's Wednesday and um, you got me, Brandon, again. So um, if you hadn't figured that out already. Uh, like I mentioned in the last episode when I did the episode on uh, Jack the Ripper, um, I'd mentioned A.J. Tomes. Um, and he's fascinating. I mean, A.J. Tomes is considered by many to be the first real, like, urban serial killer in the United States. Um, he was active, you know, at the same time as Jack the Ripper. That's why the whole connection there kind of kept coming up. So I figured he'd be one that we would talk about. Before we get into the episode, I do want to thank all of you for listening. Um, I want to thank every, you know, all the stations that put us on the air and everyone for coming back. Um, it's it's amazing to find out that there's just many people out there that kind of, you know, want to hear us talk and want to hear, you know, what we have to say and agree with us. So remember, if you want to talk to us, want to let us know your thoughts, give us an idea on an episode you want us to do, um, send us a message at downtherh at protonmail.com, or if you want to just send me a direct message, um, I do use Instagram, and that's Mr. underscore B underscore 666. Yeah, so send us a message. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know your thoughts. Um, if there's something that you don't agree with, something we said, let us know. Um, we're definitely people, uh, we're not stuck in in our beliefs. If you can show me evidence, you know, that changes something that I said, I, I will be the first one to, you know, admit to it. Um, I am, I'm here to learn. Um, that's one thing I mean about me. I love learning new things. And that's one of the reasons why I do this, did this podcast, because I get to learn new stuff all the time. Um, like today, we're going to talk about, you know, H.H. Holmes. Uh, all I ever knew of H.H. Holmes was the stories of the murder castle. And if you've never heard of H.H. Holmes in the, the murder castle, um, the beast of Chicago, um, everything else, you're missing out. Um, he is, he's insane. <laughs> he, he, or was insane, um, obviously. Uh, so yeah, we're just going to jump right into it. Um, I'm going to, you know, jump around a little bit. You know me, I, I, I'm. I, I can't keep a straight thought, so I'll jump around a little bit as usual, um, but I want to start out kind of, you know, a little bit about him, and then we're going to go into his early life, kind of where he came from, everything like that, um, and I'm going to do broad strokes, as always, you guys should be used to that by now, we, we're pretty much broad strokes on these, um, we don't, we deep dive, but we also leave a lot for you as the listener to go find for yourself because uh, we want you to come up with your own ideas. I mean, we went and we found different things. Um, I read a couple books on him and I've studied H.H. Holmes in the past. Um, he's one that's, he's fascinated me because he's different and that's one of the things we'll get into. Um, he was different. He, he wanted it you talk about the product killer and you talk about, you know, a, a process killer and everything else. And he is the rare both in a lot of ways. It seemed like he wanted it. He did it for the product because he wanted the money. It was a money thing for him. It was a business transaction for him. But in the same side of that, it almost seems like he still enjoyed killing and dismembering and everything else. Um, so he's, a, he's, for someone who 
and it sounds weird to say who who I like to study serial killers and the psychology and everything else that goes behind in their brain um, and all of that. And he is a narcissist to the nth degree, but in a way that doesn't fit a lot of the other ones. Um, so yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna go and dive right into this. H.H. Um, Holmes was not his given name, um, and this is the 1880s, 1860s, 1880s, um, those end of the 1800s, where, I mean, it was pretty easy just to move to a new town and change your name. Um, he was born Herman Webster Mudgett, so there's a name for you, Herman Webster Mudgett. Um, and May 16, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, he was born into an affluent family. Um, Holmes enjoyed a privileged childhood and was said to be unusually intelligent at an early age. Um, but there were signs of what was to come. Um, he did express an interest in medicine, uh, which led him to practice surgery on animals. And then some accounts indicate that he may have been responsible for the death of a friend. He had a one real friend as a child, um, and that one will that one friend died in a, a accident in a abandoned home and the only people that were there were you know this child and you know Herman as we'll call him to begin with but it, it is H.H. Holmes um, Herman was the only one there with him and when he died um, there's reports that when they asked him you know how he was feeling or whatever you know and he said well I prefer to be alone and it's kind of like, oh, well, that's a weird comment. So one of those things that, that a lot of people think he may, that may have been his first taste into murder. And the other thing, too, is there's a lot of, this is like many serial killers um, that I, we have talked about and that we will talk about. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we get and we learn from his, his telling, his books. Uh, his everything, you know, him telling other people what happened. So some of the stuff is going to be some alleged, which we say a lot when we're talking about these things. Um, but yeah, so there's allegedly he he may have been responsible for the death of that friend. Um, there's also a story from when he was younger, um, a story that scared him because uh, he hated the doctor, which at that time, this is one of those things you have to look back to. Um, I think I kind of alluded to it a little bit in the uh, uh, Jack the Ripper when I was talking about him, doctors weren't what they are now, where we look at doctors as a very influential person and stuff like that. A, a doctor back in the you know late 1800s, it's pretty much where you went to die. They were a last resort. Um, and doctors were looked at ghoul, like ghouls and creeps. Um, Frankenstein's monster, I mean, Fra Dr. Frankenstein, um, that would have been a normal doctor. I mean, really, they portray him as this horrible person, but really, that's kind of what they did. Um, they went and robbed graves um, and did other things like that. Um, so really, the idea of like Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is really, we see it as like insanity and like, oh my God, that's horrible. But back then, that he, he would have just been a doctor. Um, probably not just piecing together parts, trying to bring him back to life, but you never know. Um, a lot of times, doctors would go and grave rob that was part of being a doctor a lot of times you know first year med students that was part of their job was to go steal you know corpses so that they had something to autopsy 
um, and stuff like that. So it's it's a very weird weird view on doctors. It's kind of one of those things. It's like maybe one of these days we'll really go down the rabbit hole of like the progression of doctors throughout the years um, and what they were were perceived as um, at that time. So he was sent to a doctor or went to a doctor's office um, and he hated him. Some bullies pushed him and forced him into the doctor's office. And when he went in there, he saw a skeleton, an articulating skeleton that was basically like it was reaching out for him. And he said it scared him, but at the same time intrigued him. And a lot of people, he, he portrays this as his reasoning for going into, you know, becoming a doctor. But I think what it more came down to was if you could find some kind of medicine that worked really well, you could make a lot of money really fast. And that's what he was looking more for, was that. He was all about the Benjamins. I don't think they had Benjamin on back then, but yeah, he was all about the Benjamins. Um, yeah, so his life of crime began with various frauds and scams, and that was kind of the beginning. Um, he, like I said, started off as a, a young boy um, doing things to animals hurting animals, um, stuff like that. He ended up actually getting married at 17, having a baby, and then decided he wanted to go to medical school. Um, went to medical school. Um, he went, oh, I can't remember. And this article isn't telling me and that I didn't write it down. Uh, he went to one school first, I believe, in Vermont and then transferred to the University of Michigan. Um and while there, University of Michigan at, Ar at Ar Ann Arbor, um, while there, he stole corpses, used them to make, you know, false insurance claims, stuff like that. Um, and then he was using them for experiments. There's a story in one of the articles I was reading about one of the people when he was at school um, and before he went to Ann Arbor, the first school he was at, um, that he, um, his boarder, because he was staying at a boarding house, had smelled something weird and went to go and try and figure out what it was in his room. Um, and he actually had a, basically a, the corpse of a baby under his bed, um, strapped to a, a board so that he could basically autopsy it and figure out like how it ticked, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, sounds horrible, but mm, it's kind of how it was. So yeah, but, um, like I said, faced a lot of bullying as a kid, stuff like that. Um, he did marry, like I said, 1878. He married Clara Lovering in New Hampshire. They had one son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, um, in a, February 3rd, 1880. Um, and Robert actually went on to become a certified public accountant. Um, Clara is probably one of the ones that, um, the lucky ones. Because she was able to pretty much, um, she got away from him. So most of his other, as we'll find out and we'll talk about, most of his other love interests did not end in fair so well. So basically they were married, had a baby, and then he decided that, like I said, at 18, he decided he wanted to go to the, it was the University of Vermont in Burlington. Um, he didn't like the school and left and then went to Michigan. Um... And that's kind of one of the things. A lot of people say he left because he wasn't satisfied with the school, because he didn't think they were 
challenging him enough. They weren't smart enough for him. Um, and he had very, very um, a high outlook on himself. Very much so. Very much. Um, and the other thing that's very interesting about him, when people, they interviewed people that would have met him during college years and all that, they didn't remember a whole lot. Of, he was kind of one of those forgettable people in a way. It was like they basically said, oh, they kind of remembered him, but there was nothing neither good nor bad really about him. Maybe that he was a little bit weird. Um, I did read somewhere once where his nickname was Schmegma, um, which Schmegma, because apparently he smelled bad, and they said he smelled like Schmegma, which um, it's kind of disgusting. Considering if you know what schmegma is. If you don't know what schmegma is, go look it up. It's, uh, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what it smells like, but apparently that's what he smelled like. Yes. Um, like I said, 1882, he went to the University of Michigan, Department of Medicine and Surgery, graduated. He actually graduated in 1884 after passing his exams. Um, while enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor William James Herdman who was the chief anatomy instructor. Um, and those two two were said to have been engaged in facilitating grave robbing, robbing to supply medical cadavers, which was at the time kind of a known thing that, that doctors did. Um, wasn't, wasn't approved, <laughs> really, but it was just kind of a known thing. Um, yeah. So, Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Nathan White, a noted advocate of human dissection. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder, um, uh, he claimed to be nothing but a fraudster, insurance fraudster. He admitted to using cadavers to fraud life insurance companies, which he did in the very beginning when he first got caught. He said that basically, yes, he used dead bodies and cadavers, but those were ones that he'd either gotten legally, legally, quote unquote, from uh, medical schools or that he had stolen from graves, that they, he didn't kill anyone. Yeah. But we know he did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he would use the, and basically it was one of those things and he was accused of it quite a bit. And later on, we'll talk about that's pretty much what got him caught was he would, um, it was an idea that they came up with. They would take like a classmate or something like that or a friend, put a life insurance policy on them and then go get a cadaver, fake the person's death, and then use the cadaver to say, oh yeah, this is so-and-so, and then they'd get the insurance money and they'd split it. That was a plan that they used quite a bit. So, very interesting. Um, while they were at uni in uh, Michigan, Clara joined him in Michigan, um, and a lot of housemates that were there recalled that uh, Holmes was physically violent with Clara. So in 1884, right before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire. Um, and they knew little of each other afterwards. They Pretty much once she went back to New Hampshire, they very, had very little contact. Um, he just, they never divorced though. They never actually divorced, which will come up a little bit later in the other things we talk about. But there was never an actual divorce. Um, and then, yeah, she left. And then he moved to uh, Moores, New York. There's rumors spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Um, the boy 
Combs claims the boy was his son and that he went back home. Um, a lot of people later believe that that's not true, um, that that was just a random boy that they think he just adopt, abducted and had with him. And they think that was, you know, if it wasn't his friend, they think that might have been his first victim. And there's a lot of he uh, basically was convicted of, I think, nine, which we'll get to nine deaths. He admitted to, I think it was 20, uh, 27. So yeah, 14 were proved. He confessed to 27 and it's rumored people believe that he actually, um, it was closer to 200. Um, so there's a lot of them like this little boy that people are like, hmm, could have been. So no one knows because there was no investigation. And then Holmes left town. Uh, then he went to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was hired as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital. Uh, but quit after a few days. Um, and then he took uh, a job at a drugstore in Philadelphia while he was working there. And this is another one. And this is one that's very interesting. Um, like a lot of these things, there's multiple versions of some of these stories. And in this one, I've heard different ones. I've heard it was a boy that died. And I've heard that it was an older lady that died. Um, but either way, there was somebody who died after he had, because like I said, he was working at a pharmacy and at the pharmacies, a lot of times they mix their own drugs. They had a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and someone died after taking medicine that he made. And at that point he left New York, left Chicago and on his way to Chicago, um, they basically say that at that point he almost, he pretty much left everything behind, just up and left, including his name. And that's when he changed his name and became Henry Howard Holmes. So that way nobody could, you know, would know that he was really Mudget. So he was really Herman Mudget, um, which is such a, a weird name. So, but yeah, so he went with Henry Howard Holmes and yeah, and it just kind of, Moves on from there. And then in 1886, while still legally married to Clara, uh, Holmes married 24-year-old Murda Belknap in Minnesota. He did file for, for divorce from Clara after marrying Murda and alleged infidelity on her part, which is just insane. He even named somebody that nobody's ever been able to find. But he named a person and said that she was cheating on him with this guy and he wanted a divorce um, and that they he had they had carnal knowledge of each other um, and it just really kind of went nowhere um, the paperwork indicated that Clara probably was never even informed of the suit and basically the divorce was never finalized on June, June 4th 1891 it was dismissed on the grounds of want of prosecution and then Holmes had one daughter with murder, Lucy Theodette Holmes, um, who was born in the Inglewood neighborhood of Chicago. Lucy, her lady, became a uh, school teacher. And Holmes, Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmot, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. So, yeah. Then he married Georgina Yoke in, on January 17th, 1894, in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and murder. So, sounds like he's a Mormon. 
I'm going to so get in trouble for that comment. Yeah. So, so far, he's a possible murderer and a, uh, you know, uh, yeah, multi-marrier. So, polygamist. There's the word my brain is trying to come up with. So, then, while he was in Chicago um, in 1886, and, you know, he started using the name H.H. Holmes, so once he got there, um, he came across a drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. The drugstore's owner, Elizabeth Holton, gave Holmes a job. He proved to be a hardworking employee, eventually buying the store. Um, there's there's differing accounts of this. Um, one account says that Elizabeth Holton actually owned the the and was the doctor who owned the uh the drugstore another account says that elizabeth holton was actually an older lady um with uh, her husband was a doctor and that he was dying and old and that he bought it from her after he died and then she went quote unquote went to visit family in California and just never came back supposedly um, but then other stories just say that he bought it from her and she left she she moved so it, it, there's weird different ways um, so but at some point while he was running the this store he purchased the empty lot that was across the street and in 1887 he started constructing uh, a two-story mixed-use buildings with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces on the bottom floor, which also include a new drugstore. Um, when Holmes, and this was, <laughs> he he was a shyster. He was a shyster through and through. There's stories, too, that he sold the pharmacy that he'd bought to somebody else, um, sold it to him, did everything, and after he sold it to him, when the guy like left to go get his family and come back, um, by the time the guy got back, you know, a week or so later or whatever, however long it took, Holmes had emptied the entire pharmacy of everything. So basically the guy got an empty building. I mean, took the furnishings and like the fixtures, everything. And the guy just had basically an empty spot that he had to, had, he had to fill up with everything. And then a couple weeks later, you know, whatever, a month, whatever, however time later, all of a sudden, Holmes opened up a second, a new pharmacy directly across the street with all the fixtures and drugs that he'd taken from the other guy. So this was something that he did a lot. And then he also did while he was building, the putting the building up, he would hire different um different contractors and back then i mean it was kind of one of those things chicago was really growing um this was a little bit after the the huge chicago fire which is another one that we should cover sometime on how horrible that was but after that fire there was a lot of building going on and it was kind of one of those things it was it was the birthplace of a lot of building and a lot of skyscrapers and stuff like that because all of a sudden um what you didn't have before that something you did you had a huge place with a lot of people and a lot of open land 
because of the fact that everything had burned down. So you had this empty land with a whole bunch of people there. So they started building skyscrapers and apartment buildings and stuff like that. Um, so there was a lot of workers that were coming into Chicago to be able to get stuff done. So what he'd do is he'd hire workers. And of course, you don't pay them until they're done. And then he would hire them. They would work for a day or two. And then he'd fire them for some random thing that he decided. And they would, you know, leave. And then he would never pay them. And they come looking for him, but there was enough people that he could keep doing this, and he got away with it for quite a while. Um, so Holmes, you know, built the hotel, and there's a lot of people that think that you know he he did it to to lure people in from because the the World's Fair was in Chicago, but um, it wasn't really. I mean, this was the World's Fair when it came to Chicago was towards the end of what he was doing. He just kind of did this because Chicago was growing, but he built this hotel thing, um, and he would occasionally sell, you know, skeletons to the uh, the medical schools and stuff like that. And there's questions on where those skeletons came from. But like I said, the first floor was all businesses the second floor was for people to stay in um and there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of guesses on what really happened here and that's kind of the thing that gets crazy on this the murder capital a murder hotel was there i mean if you ever get a chance look up the the drawings on this thing it's insane um so there was a lot of things that supposedly it contained you know secret torture chambers trap doors gas chambers a basement crematorium um all sorts of stuff and there was a lot of rooms with mazes doors you know weird stuff like that um it's it's interesting with a lot of disputes but he did kill a lot of people in there um and it was gutted by fire that's the hard part because a lot of people say and this is where it gets into arguments you'll see stuff where people say oh no 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 no! everything that they said wasn't the these things that were supposedly there weren't really there um one of them because there was a third floor that was added to it so the third floor of the hotel was moderately sized largely unremarkable and completed due to homes disputes um it had some hidden rooms um but supposedly they were used for hiding furniture homes bought on credit and did not intend to pay for um there's a uh, a lot of things here that like there's one victim miss uh kate durkey who was supposedly killed who later was found to be alive um usual murder murder weapon was bleh, murder method was suffocation um overdose of chloroform so overexposure lighting gas fumes trapped in airless vault to give some examples so he did do some of that stuff like that um and burning alive he did claim to burn some people alive do stuff like that um and like i said it was gutted by fire by an unknown arsonist shortly after his arrest uh but then it was largely rebuilt and used as a post office so until 1938 um so yeah so that's just kind of those things. So now we're going to go through and kind of talk about some of the presumed murders that he did um, in the castle and, you know, everywhere else. 
Um, and like I said, go look and like see what you can see with the, the, the way they say the castle was set up and all that stuff. Um, so some of the presumed ones, um, Holmes' mistress was a 31-year-old Julia Smythe and the wife of Dr. Lawrence Iclius Ned Connor, um, who had moved into Holmes' building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. Um, after Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and their five-year-old daughter, Pearl, uh, behind. Smith gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing a relationship with Holmes. Julia and Pearl both disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891. Holmes initially claimed to acquaintances that Julia had left unexpectedly to visit her dying sister, but Chen then changed the story and said that she had fled her former husband. So ultimately, Holmes eventually claimed that she died during an abortion. Um, despite his medical background, Holmes is unlikely to be experienced in carrying out abortions. and mortality for such a procedure was high at that time. Um, he claimed to have poisoned Pearl, likely to hide the circumstance of her mother's death. A partial skeleton, possibly a child around Pearl's age, was found when excavating Holmes' cellar. So... Uh, Pearl was a key witness at Holmes' trial in Chicago. So that's one of them. Um, they they actually think that she was killed, um, that he basically took all the meat off her body, turned her into a skeleton, and sold her to a doctor's office. So um, some books and some articles that you can find actually will even claim that they've been able to figure out which ones um, which ones, where that went to and who's, whose skeleton, who ended up with that skeleton. So it's quite interesting. Uh, 23 year old Emmeline Sigrand, um, began working in Holmes building in May of 1892 and worked for him for six months. Um, Holmes reportedly hired Sigrand as a secretary due to her connection to a doctor who peddled a vaccine that allegedly cured alcoholism. Those who saw Sagrand in the weeks before her disappearance said she appeared to have lost interest in Holmes and their relationship. Sagrand was last seen in December 1892. Her parents were informed that she had left to marry a man named Robert Phelps. Authorities hypothesized that she had gotten pregnant at, by Holmes, possibly being a victim of another failed abortion that Holmes tried to cover up. Um, a lot of people believe that actually what he would do is it wasn't really failed abortions. He would tell them that he was going to perform an abortion. Um, and that's what, you know, some people say he promised to marry them if they had the abortion or whatever, but he had to perform it. And instead of performing the abortion, he just smothered them with chloroform and killed them. So... Which is a horrible way to go. I mean, I always thought, you know, you see in the movies where they, they take chloroform and they just kind of, you know, pass out, um, which I guess does kind of happen. But if you overdose them on chloroform, they go into seizures and it gets very, very ugly from everything that I read. So not a good way to go. Yeah, so not good at all. Um, early 1893... A 24-year-old one-time actress named Wilhelmina Williams, um, they called her actually Minnie, moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though it is believed that he had actually met her in Boston several years earlier while she was then going by the alias, he was going by the alias Harry Gordon. Um, they found multiple aliases that he did use at different times. Um, Holmes offered her job at the hotel as his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to the property, that, a property that she owned in Fort Worth. 
um, to a man named Alexander Bond, which was another of his aliases. Um, in April 19, 1893, Williams transferred the deed with Holmes serving as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Peitzel, who was a good friend of him, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The following month, Holmes and Williams presented themselves as husband and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's younger sister, 18-year-old Anna Nanny Williams, came to visit. On an, and on July 5, 1893, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. In it, she signed off with the message, uh, Brother Harry says, You need never trouble any more about me, financially or otherwise. He and sister will see to me. I hope our hard days are over. Uh, neither Minnie nor Nanny were ever seen alive again. And Holmes would subsequently use Minnie's name in future scams. So they were actually believed um, in one of the rooms that he had. Um, there was supposedly a uh, vault that was big enough to walk into. Um, and he had set the vault up so that it locked. And you could lock it like most vaults from the outside. You could lock it. There was actually even supposedly a slider that you can open up to have a glass view. Um, and it was sealed airtight. And there was one hole in the back hooked to a pipe that he could put gas in there. So he could either put gas in there and smother them with the gas or just close the door and let them suffocate. Which um, he actually, um, in different confessions, says that's how he got both Minnie and Nanny and actually Julia Smythe. That's how he got her too, was inside there and smothered her. Um Actually, now Julia. Julia was in the in abortion. Um, the other, oh, I can't remember the other one. There was another one. It's probably going to come up later that he supposedly put in there. So, like I said, there was so many different versions and stuff that it, at times, from reading different articles, different books. Stuff like that, it starts to, some of them kind of cross in my brain. So that's why I say go ahead and research this. But I mean, you're going to have to look in a few places. Because like I said, there's multiple different different stories, depending on which article you're reading. Because um, a lot of it comes from him, and then some of it's from different you know things that they're able to find out. Um, so some of the suspected deaths. We've got six-year-old creditor of homes named John De Bruyne, who died of a pop. Papalexi on April 17th, 1891 in the castle. Um, so that was an, another interesting one. So an apocalypse is rupture of an internal organ and the accompanying symptoms, the term formerly referred to what is now called a hemorrhagic stroke, which results in ruptured blood vessel in the brain. So, um, so that's the apoplexy that he supposedly died from. Um, yeah. So, um, De Bruyne collapsed. So, um, and died in the castle on April 17, 1891, in the drugstore. And he died shortly after Holmes had poured a black liquid down his throat, according to a witness. Foul play was not suspected in 1895. It was, it was determined that De Bruyne's life had been insured and that Holmes had profited from his death. So, very interesting one there. 1891, Emily Van Tassel disappeared after working at Holmes' drugstore. Holmes spoke of her in his confession. In 1897, Tassel's name was cited in a list of suspected victims. 
and Tassel's mother believed she was a possible victim. Dr. Rustler had an office in the castle and went missing in 1892. Holmes mentioned killing Rustler in one of his confessions. Kitty Kelly, a stenographer for Holmes, went missing in 1892. Uh, John Davis in Greenville, Pennsylvania, went to visit the 1893 World's Fair and vanished. In 1920, he was declared legally dead. Harry Walker of Greensburg, Indiana, went missing in November in 1893. He was alleged to have insured his life to Holmes for $20,000 and wrote to friends that he was working for Holmes in Chicago. Um, Holmes and Peitzel took George, Wa- George Thomas out to a Mississippi swamp um, on the Tom Big, Big B River in June 1894, killed him and disposed of the body. Um, Holmes confessed the murder to his second wife. Milford Cole, Baltimore, Maryland, discipline, or disappeared after receiving a telegraph from Holmes to come to Chicago in July 1894. Um, and an- another possible victim was Lucy Burbank. Her bank book was found with human hair and a chimney flew at the castle in 1895. And then allegedly in his confession, Holmes claimed to have killed two persons in Lake County, Illinois um, in the 1890s, which was confirmed years later when the remains of an unknown man and unknown woman were found on a farm in 1919, 23 years after his execution. So those are some of the presumed people the ones that are pretty much known and the presumed people that he killed um look into the castle it's it's fascinating but the hard part is like i said because it burned um there's a lot of accounts and a lot of arguments that go back and forth what was really there a lot of accounts say that the second floor was built in a way with um, hidden passages in between. Um, some of the rooms were airtight so that air couldn't get in and out and would have um, gas lines that went in, just into the room. And the controls to those gas lines were in Holmes's room. So he could open up the, the gas line and kill whoever was in there by overloading them with, with gas fumes and smothering them basically. So now Peitzel, I've mentioned a couple of times. Now this is where, you know, we have the murder castle and that's what most of us know about him. Peitzel's a whole nother side of this. And Peitzel's pretty much the one that brings him kind of is the reason that he comes, he, he's taken down. So Peitzel, while working in a chemical bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with the 38-year-old Benjamin Freelon Peitzel. He was a carpenter with a criminal past who was exhibiting in the same building um, a coal bin he had invented. Holmes used Peitzel as his right-hand man for several criminal uh, schemes. So a district attorney later described Peitzel as Holmes' tool, his creature. Uh, with insurance companies pressing to prosecute him for arson, Holmes left Chicago in July 1894. He appeared in Fort Worth where he had gotten the property from the Williams sisters at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street, where he once again attempted to build an incomplete structure without paying his suppliers and contractors. Um, in July 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time. So everything that he has done up to this point has never been arrested. One thing that they say about him is that he was actually very um, persuasive. He was a con man, like I said, to the nth degree, and he was very persuasive. They would say that people would talk about how they would go there to like get money from him, be like, hey, fucker, you owe us money. Give us our money. And by the time you left, you left with no money, and he was patting you on the back, and you were acting like he was your best friend. 
And a lot of people talk about how that, that he could just turn, turn your thoughts that way into from, you know, oh my God, this guy's a schmuck and I'm going to kill him to, hey, he's now my best friend. And it was just kind of how it worked. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of the, the thing with H.H. H. Holmes is he could just kind of smooth his way through anybody. But yeah, so first time being arrested was 1894 and this is after the murder castle after all that um he even had like detectives come and talk to him about the people that were going missing from the the murder castle and he would convince them that oh he had nothing to do with it they just left they left and left all their clothes and left everything so yeah it was insane so holmes was promptly bailed out but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepeth, who was serving a 24-year sentence. Holmes had conducted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of 10 grand by taking out a policy. And see, this is where some of the articles differ. Some of them say it was 40 grand, and there was a policy on Peitzel, and not him. So, um, but either way. It comes down to that Holmes had promised Hedgepath a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe. Howe thought Holmes' scheme was brilliant and agreed to play a part. Nevertheless, Holmes' plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. So he didn't press the claim. So, and then... This is where, depending on which article you read, some say that it happened this way. Other way, it said this part never happened, and it was always a plan for Peitzel. Because the other ones say, oh, his didn't work, so then they decided to do the same thing, but with Peitzel this time, instead of him. Now, Marion Hedgepath is interesting all in himself. He was known as the Handsome Bandit, the Debonair Bandit, or the Derby Kid, um, also the Montana Bandit. And was actually, at that time, he's not one that we've heard of a lot, but um, he was a, a famous outlaw at that time. Um, yeah, so, very interesting. So, he's one that I, I'd never really heard of until I started looking at this, but he was actually one of those, he, he was famous. So, pursued by the Pinkertons, arrested on February 10th, 1892 in San Francisco and brought back to Missouri for trial. So... Um, yeah, very interesting one, one that, you know, might be one that might be interesting to talk, look at and go down that rabbit hole later. So he even had a, a group, um, that was referred to as the Hedgepeth Four. So, um, they robbed a train of $20,000 in Glendale, Missouri. So another interesting character that he kind of ran into and plays an interesting part in, you know, um, in H.H. H. Holmes' life. So, um, so Peitzel agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect 10000 um, which he was split with Holmes and Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for Peitzel to set himself up as an investor under the name B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Peitzel, um, but that's not how it went down. How it went down was Holmes 
just killed Beitzel. So he knocked him unconscious with chloroform, set his body on fire with benzene. Um, and in his confession, Holmes implied Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before he set him on fire. So, however, forensic evidence presented at Holmes' trial, trial showed chloroform had been administered after Peitzel's death. A fact that the insurance company was unaware, presumably to stage a suicide to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. So, very interesting. So, he collected the insurance payout on the basis of the genuine Peitzel corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate Peitzel's wife, uh, Carrie Alice Canning, into allowing three of her five children to be placed in his custody. Um, and this is another one that got weird. Um, there's weird stories on how he did this. Uh, one of the stories was that he needed one of the, the, the oldest daughter to um, identify the body. And he wanted her because she didn't know that it was... Uh, a scam there's all different ways that they talk about you know how he conned her into letting them letting him take the children but anyhow he ended up sorry he ended up with three of the, their five children he ended up with 13 year old Alice Peitzel 9 year old Nellie Peitzel and 7 year old Howard Peitzel um, Holmes and the three Peitzel children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Uh, simultaneously, he escorted Carrie along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Carrie concerning her husband's death by claiming Peitzel was hiding in London. Um, and then he was in Canada. And then he was... Yeah. So, And then he was lying to her about where their children were. So... Um, at one point, uh, they basically, while they were trying to figure out what how this all went down, um, that they believe that at one point before he went to Canada, while they were in Detroit, that her and him and the kids were only separated by a few blocks. They were like right by each other. But this whole time, she thought her husband was alive and that this whole thing, but he was just, I don't know, playing musical chairs with everyone, moving everyone around. It was almost like the, you know, the three cup game, you know, hiding everything under the shells and moving them all different ways. So, and then even more audacious, Holmes was staying at another location with his current wife, who was unaware of the whole, unaware of the whole thing. Um, he later confessed to murdering Alice and Nellie on October 25th by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose to the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Uh, he buried their bodies in the cellar of his rental house in Toronto. The little boy, I think, was murdered earlier than that. So I think he got the boy first. But yeah, so... But... Just horrible. Horrible. The stuff that he did. And I'm not even sure at this point. I think I've skipped over kind of like his marriages. I can't remember who he's married to at this point. So, no, I think it's still Georgina at this point. Um, I think that was his last wife was Georgina. And she actually somehow survives him through all of this. Um, Frank Geyer, who was a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate homes and three missing children, uh, found that they be decomposed bodies of the two Peitzel girls and he how he was able to follow him and everything through all of this it amazes me because he this was all questions and 
questioning people and everything else. And he was able to, to follow them pretty well. Uh, even with him switching names and everything else, he was able to keep up with them. Um, not well enough to save the children, but yeah. So yeah, he found the, the Peitzel's girls, uh, bodies in the cellar, the Toronto home. Uh, he wrote, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became. And when we reached a depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Uh, Guy then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a, a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs, which we, he had used to kill Howard Peitzel on October 10th, 1894, in a repair shop to sharpen the knife to use the top of the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bones were discovered in the home's chimney. So he killed all three of them. So, so he was finally caught in November 17th, 1894 in Boston. After being tracked there from Philadelphia by the private Pinkerton National Detective Agency. That's another one we should talk about someday. Is just go down the, the history of the Pinkertons. Because apparently they're still around. So... Uh, he was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas. So everything he's done and the warrant he's held on is horse theft in Texas. Because trust me, I live in Texas. Horse theft in Texas, that is that is not a good thing. You don't steal horses. Um, so, in, yes. So he's held on a warrant for horse theft in Texas because authorities had become more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. So in July, July 1895, following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's bodies, Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes' building in Inglewood, now locally referred to as the castle. Though many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found which could have been convicted Holmes in Chicago, as there were only very circumstantial physical evidence of the castle Victims, a piece of human bone, possibly from Julia Connor, remains of child, possibly Pearl Connor, a burned gold watch, chain, and burned dress buttons, apparently belonging to Minnie Williams, a tuft of human female hair found in a chimney flue. So, on those ones, Holmes would be tried for the murder of Petzl in Philadelphia, which had the clearest case for murder. October 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. So this is the part that just kills kills me on all this. Everything he did, and it was Peitzel, his accomplice. That is what brought him down. Was Peitzel. Just crazy. Uh, by then it was evidence Holmes had also murdered three missing Peitzel children. Following his conviction, Holmes, who was, you know, already sentenced to death... Now he just convinced, he confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, and six attempted murders. Um, Holmes was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers. Ooh, there's the Hearst coming back up. Um, in exchange for his confession, while writing his confession in prison, Holmes mentioned how drastically his facial experience had changed since his imprisonment. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged at Moimensing prison for the murder of Peitzel. Till the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. Despite this, he asked for his coffin to be uh, contained in concrete and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. 
Holmes' neck did not break, so he was not one of the lucky ones. His neck did not break. Instead, he strangled to death slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before pronounced dead. Um, not long enough. Not long enough in my thoughts. Not long enough at all. Um, upon his execution, Holmes' body was interned in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Yedon, Pennsylvania. New Year's Eve 1909, Hedgepath, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaberk during a holdup at a Chicago bar. March 7, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that with the death of Patrick Quinlan, the former caretaker of the castle, the mistress Holmes' castle would remain unexplained. Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. So, Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucination. So, like I said, the castle itself was damaged in a fire. In August 1895, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 9 uh, and 9 p.m., and about a half an hour later, they were then seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. The site is currently occupied by the Englewood branch of the United States Postal Service. So, they took a murder castle and put a you know post office on top of it. Not sure which is worse. 2017, during allegations, Holmes had escaped execution. Holmes' body was exhumed for testing, led by Janet Mung of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to his coughing and being contained in concrete, his body was found to have not decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved, and his mustache was found intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. He was then reburied. So, that's kind of the the gist of it, I mean, to a point, like I said, go research this a little bit. So, um, it's been notorious in its time, received wide publicity and internal press. Uh, there was uh, Harold Schechter put out a book, uh, The Depraved, or called Depraved, The Shocking True Story of America's First Serial Killer, um, that was put out in 1994, was the first major book on him. Uh, signed in 74. American Gothic by horror writer Robert Block was a fictionalized version of the story of H.H. H. Holmes. Um, interest in Holmes' crimes was revived in 2003 by Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America, a best-selling nonfiction book that juxtaposed an account of the planning and staging of the World's Fair with a fictional version of Holmes' story. Um, his story had been chronicled in The Torture Doctor by David Frank in 75, The Scarlet Mansion by Alan W. Eckert in 85, as well as The Monster of 63rd Street, uh, chapter in The Gem of the, the Prairie and Formal History of the Chicago Underworld by Herbert Asbury in 1940 and republished in 86. Um, 2015, a film adaption of The Devil in the White City starring Leonardo DiCaprio and directed by Martin Scorsese was to begin filming but never got off the ground. 2019, Scorsese and DiCaprio were to be executive producers in a television ver version to have been released by Paramount TV and Hulu, but the effort is no longer progressing. So, and then the dark, the video game, the dark pictures anthology, The Devil and Me, largely references is inspired 
by H.H. Holmes and his murder castle. So there's a lot of like pop, you know, culture stuff that has to do with this. Um, but it's a very fascinating one. I, I skipped over quite a bit, honestly, um, just for time's sake, because I mean, we're, we're, we're coming up on an hour. Um, and there's still more that I didn't even talk about. Um, one of the big ones is, I mean, a lot of what happened with him was tied to the Chicago World's Fair because the World's Fair where the, you know, you had the whole thing of um, Tesla and all that going on, the big battle with Tesla and everything um, at that Chicago World's Fair. It didn't happen um, really because of the World's Fair. So the murder house didn't really have anything to do with the World's Fair. It just happened to be in the same place. Um, there's big thoughts that a lot of people that went to the World's Fair would go to, you know, a lot of people checked into his hotel for the World's Fair and died. But there's not a lot of evidence to that. Just a lot of speculation. But once again, at that time, it wasn't that hard for someone to just say, yeah, I'm going to move to this other state and use a different name and suddenly you just don't exist anymore. And it happened a lot with stuff like that where people are just like, yeah, um, I'm Henry now and I live over here. I don't know who Herman is. I don't know what you're talking about. So who knows what happened to a lot of those people if they really did, if it really was, you know, the 27 that he claimed or was it less or was it more? We'll probably never know for sure. I think it was more. I think he did He did kill more people. Um, he was a sick, sick individual. Um, he deserved to, to, to strangle for more than 15 minutes, but that's what we got. So I'm going to leave you on that one. Thank you all. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you want to hear next, anything like that. Um, and, yeah, I'm out. You guys have a great Great weekend, and we'll, we'll talk to you on Sunday.